This is Pro Wrestling Torch columnist Greg Parks for another edition of Greg Parks Out Loud here for VIP members of PWTorch.com. Thanks, everybody, for taking the time out to listen. I uh, have a really interesting take, I think, on uh, a book that was published late last fall uh, called The Last Real World Champion, The Legacy of Nature Boy Ric Flair. I wrote about it for my column in the Torch newsletter this week. So for those unfamiliar with this show, this is where I read my column out loud, hence the name of the show, and am able to dive a little deeper on some of the things I wrote, expand on some of the points that I made. So always uh, love having the opportunity to do that. So thanks again for listening here. So if you're a longtime reader of my columns in the Torch newsletter, and for those who aren't, I've been writing columns for about, um, gosh, I think I started in 2000. I started covering SmackDown for the Torch in 2007 because it was my last year of college. I think it wasn't long after that, maybe a year or two, that I started writing PDF exclusive columns in the online version of the Torch newsletter each week and then graduated to uh, getting them published in the, the newsletter, the hard copy each week. So I bet it's been about 15 years uh, that I've been writing a column each and every week in the Torch newsletter. And anyway, this is my roundabout way of saying uh, I enjoy reading books and wrestling books and reviewing them in my column. I've done probably a dozen or more book reviews in my column. And so uh, when this one was delivered to me, I wanted to get into this and write about it. So I just finished it. I'm recording this on Sunday night. I just finished the book today. Uh, so I, I read quite a bit of it on my trip to Colorado last weekend. You may have noticed there wasn't a column, wasn't a recording last weekend because I was in Colorado celebrating my wife's 30th birthday. So I took the book along with me, took a big chunk out of that, and was able to finish it here tonight and uh, write my review of it in the upcoming newsletter. So let's get into it. Few wrestlers in the modern era have been as discussed, dissected, and debated as much as the nature boy, Ric Flair. WWE has presented DVDs dedicated to him. ESPN aired a 30 for 30 documentary about his life. Contemporaries have spoken about him in hundreds of shoot interviews. Newsletters like The Torch and Wrestling Observer have tracked his impact on the business in real time for decades. Then there's Flair himself, who has hosted his own podcast and written two autobiographies. And yet, another book has been entered into the Flair universe, Tim Hornbaker's The Last Real World Champion, The Legacy of Nature Boy Ric Flair. Uh, recently, PW Torch analyst Todd Martin reviewed this book in audio form on his show, The Fix. Other than knowing from social media and from the description of the podcast that Martin was down on the book in his review, I do not know specifically what he said about it. I purposely avoided listening to it so as to not color my own opinions and my own review herein. I know uh, that Todd uh, reads a lot of wrestling books just like I do. He reviews a lot of them on The Fix, more than I get a chance to read and review. So uh, certainly would implore you to check out his uh, review, not only of this book, but others. Um, when I saw that headline on The Fix audio show, I kind of cringed because I was like, I, I hope I'm not going to end up repeating some of the things he said. And it's funny because I had taken notes in my notes app um, about 
the flare book as I was reading it. And I can probably bet you some of the shortcomings that Todd thought of were ones that I had already input in there and we'll be talking about in my column as well. I was excited to read this book in part because of the reputation of the author Hornbaker. His name is well known to voracious readers of pro wrestling content. Among the historical works he has written are Death of the Territories, National Wrestling Alliance, The Untold Story of the Monopoly that Strangled Pro Wrestling, and Capital Revolution. I think I have read all three of those books. I know he's done more books than that even, uh, but I believe I've read those three books and probably reviewed... I pretty sure I reviewed Capital Revolution in this column. I may have reviewed the NWA book. Not so sure about Death of the Territories, but feel free to go back into my archives on pwtorch.com and, and see which ones that I've reviewed. I can say that I've learned a tremendous amount from Hornbaker's books over the years. The Flare book is very different, however. I'd categorize it as almost a love letter to Flair's career, a chronicle from birth to his actual retirement match, focusing on Flair's biggest bouts, feuds in front of the camera and behind the scenes, and paydays. And for a lot of people, that will be good enough. There are plenty of Flair fans out there that would love a thorough accounting of his career, one that may go a little deeper than Flair's own autobiographies. But there's a better story here that was left untold. That's the story of Flair's personal issues, intertwined with his wrestling success. For as entrancing as Flair has been as a public figure, he's been oft criticized for his drinking, his womanizing, and his financial woes, among other things. Those issues were, frankly, glossed over here. That's purposeful. Hornbaker admits in the acknowledgments that he wanted to take, quote, a purely historical approach, unquote. That he did, to the point that, at some times, the book devolved into simply paragraphs of who Flair was wrestling, when, and where. In those same acknowledgments, Hornbaker wrote that he, quote, wanted to tell his, Flair's story, with the right amount of respect and honor it was due, unquote. This after he wrote in his first paragraph of that section that, quote, my intention has never been to present a bias or favoritism, unquote, though that certainly seems to be contradicted by the previous passage I quoted. It was really interesting to me to come to the acknowledgments and, have Hornbreaker quite vividly acknowledge, I think, and, and try to maybe cut off some of the criticism that he expected to come about his book and say almost, hey, I know I left a lot of stuff out, but this is my intention with this book. It wasn't to make this book Flair and all of his warts. It was to make it Ric Flair, this is who he is. And I think that would be okay if he stuck to, if you wanted to stick to Flair the in-ring performer, um, great. Um, but then pick up right when he started wrestling and don't even bring up the outside stuff, which Hornbaker did bring up at times, his financial issues, and sort of, again, glossed over them. Um I feel like this this tried to balance them a little bit. The the inside the outside the ring flair with the inside the ring didn't really connect. A lot of the outside the ring stuff was how great flair was, which you know there were a lot of people, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who've interacted with flair that are not connected to the world of wrestling who speak very highly of flair. Um, but if you want to tell about flair's in ring, I'm not really sure how that's relevant because if you go down that path of talking about what a great guy Flair was, it almost begs to include some of the people 
or some of the issues that Flair has well documented. These are not secrets. These are not, I mean, the 30 for 30 ESPN documentary laid them out pretty bare, um, those issues. And Hornbaker did not want to seem to confront them while he was more than willing to give airtime to people who spoke highly of Flair. And I think that's where my issue kind of lands on this. Uh, All of that said, the book was very well written and presented Flair as the best wrestler of his generation, someone who had a few faults here and there, but was otherwise at heart as great a person outside the ring as he was a performer inside it. Uh, I say the book is very well written. That's important to me. Um, I'm someone who obviously likes to write. Um, You know, there's a reason that I'm still writing a full page column 15 years after I started and, uh, you know, write about the XFL slash US UFL on the side. And, you know, my, my background is writing. My background is journalism. I have a, a journalism degree. And so I can appreciate good writing. And this book was well-written, which you would expect from someone like Hornbaker, who's written a ton of books. But I just wanted to point that out as well. The research that Hornbaker provides really shows itself in the early days of Flair's existence. The level of detail the author was able to uncover was tremendous and added to the tapestry of Flair's life moving forward. There was even a connection to a case featured on the TV show Unsolved Mysteries that played a major role in Flair's early days. Unsolved Mysteries, one of my favorite shows, by the way. I still will turn on Pluto TV that has an Unsolved Mysteries channel that replays the show from the 80s and 90s, and I will just sit there and just watch it when I need some background noise while I'm writing or something like that. I mean, just absolutely tremendous. You could see from the description of his parents where Flair got many of the traits that made him successful and the skills that were passed down from them. Not only that, Hornbaker offered background on the style and character influences early in Flair's career. We know many of them already, but others may be new. So there are many influences on Ric Flair that we know about from reading his autobiography, but I think Hornbaker brings up some ones that maybe people had not known about. Naturally, the details of the plane crash that nearly derailed Flair's career were much more vivid in his autobiography. What was interesting was the level of particularities regarding the percentage of the gate that top wrestlers like Flair earned in certain territories. Um, it's always interesting. You know, I'm hugely into the territory days of wrestling in terms of wanting to read and know as much about it as I can, because I think that's probably one of the most fascinating times of pro wrestling to me and the payoffs and just how each territory was different, what made them different and the payoffs would fall into that category, how different promoters sought to pay their talent and the percentage of the gate and the percent of, you know, what their formula was even for coming up with that is, is interesting to me. As much as the philosophy of wrestling booking has changed over time with the advent of monthly pay-per-views slash PLEs and multiple multi-hour weekly television shows per organization, it's fun to trace some of the similarities of booking patterns that haven't changed as much. One instance came prior to winning the NWA title where Flair would lose to wrestlers like Ted DiBiase, Mike Graham, and the like, setting up future rematches down the line. It's akin to what we've seen over the past several years when Royal Rumble, Money in the Bank, or title winners would lose matches leading up to their major victory. Unfortunately, these days, that's not often done to set up rematches, but rather to throw fans off the scent of that person winning the big one. Not exactly the same type of foresight being used there. I will say Triple H's booking 
has not favored that as much. And I haven't noticed that also as much with Tony Khan. That was something that Vince McMahon, I think, liked to do, partially to throw fans off the scent, but partially because to give others a win when you could sort of excuse giving someone holding a Money in the Bank briefcase a loss, for example, because, well, they were going to cash in and their win of that title or of that match, if it's a Royal Rumble or a Money in the Bank match, would make up for the losses that they would suffer beforehand. Another fascinating aspect of the book was the constant vacillation between heel and babyface while Flair was NWA champion. He was a heel nationally on WTBS, the station that went out across the country, but in his home territory of Mid-Atlantic, Flair was able to square the circle by staying babyface. It's quite the story to see Hornbaker lay out just how different Flair would act at the same time, depending on where he was and who the viewers were. As much as I'm aware that the schedule of wrestlers in the 1970s and 1980s is much different than that of today, it's still shocking to see it laid out chapter and verse. The advantage of Hornbaker breaking Flair's career down to almost match-by-match at times is that you can see the grind that the NWA champion had to adhere to. The flights Flair had to take, not only across the country, but all over the world, left him little time to rest. Heck, it tired me out just reading it. There was one instance where he flew to Japan and for whatever reason I don't forget the, remember the particulars about it but he flew right back he refused to wrestle he didn't want to wrestle he flew right back landed and I think it was Crockett basically met him at the airport and told him to get back on the plane plane and go back to Japan and he did and it's just like my goodness the the three to four hour flight to Colorado did a number on me last weekend and, and to imagine going back and forth to Japan in such a short amount of time especially with the the different technology that planes even have today versus then uh, is mind-boggling. As someone who abhors travel, I can't wrap my head around the amount of time Flair must have spent at airports on airplanes. They're just going from one place to another. Unlike when I travel, though, he was certainly well compensated for it. It's even something I think of today. As much as the travel has changed, as much as the schedule has changed, Even today, it shocks me to think about how often WWE wrestlers must spend on airplanes and airports. It's not for me. As the book progresses, it's obvious Hornbaker wants to stick as much to Flair's positives and his in-ring work as he can. He rarely questions or challenges Flair's decision-making on anything. The plane ride from hell and fallout from the dark side of the ring episode received just one paragraph when it happened, though it was mentioned again later on in the book. Though no fault of Hornbaker, that story feeling like it was being swept under the rug in the book takes a different tone, given the situation involving Vince McMahon and the lawsuit pending against him. Even with the speaking out movement that came before, the time to treat incidents like flares in a boys-will-be-boys way is long past, and the seriousness of the accusations must be confronted. And, you know, I, I don't want to make it seem like Hornbaker may not have taken these seriously, they just did not get a lot of space. And the the priority in the story that Hornbaker was telling was not to confront these issues. But I think given the time period he's writing it in, I think it's a disservice to not acknowledge the seriousness of them, to not dig into them a little deeper. I mean, the the research that Hornbaker does for this book and he's done for previous books is amazing. And he chose not to do that level of research 
on these incidents. I mean, that's that is a conscious decision that he made while writing that book to to spend his precious research time in certain areas and not others. And I'm not, you know, passing judgment on that decision necessarily, but I do think that, um, you know, I'm just saying that that simply I'm stating a fact. It simply was not researched as much. And I think even he would agree to that. Like that's just not where he spent his research energy. Um, and I, I, I'm not sure you can do that the, when you're writing a book about wrestling in 2023 or 2024, especially um, now that the Vince McMahon allegations have come out. And, and granted, you know, the, the book was written before that happened. Um, but if you are an author writing a book on professional wrestling and specifically a wrestler autobiography in the year 2024 or after, you simply cannot overlook or give the reader the impression that you are not giving these accusations the seriousness they deserve. You cannot do that in this era. Um, you have to confront them. Uh, and, and I think going forward, I'm hoping that authors like Hornbaker and others are able to do that, are able to give the space in the book to those allegations and not, you know, not use the old pro wrestling. I didn't even know what you would call it, but like, you know, these have long, these incidents have long been given a pass in pro wrestling by, you know, even by writers. And um, I think those need to be confronted moving forward. During Flair's second WWE stint is where the book really turns into a, he fought who, when, and where. Granted, that could be a sly commentary on how the wrestling business had changed during Flair's career. At one time, matches, angles, and storylines had a bigger impact than they do today when often big angles are forgotten about months or even weeks later. It's the nature of the beast when simply churning out content is often the priority. And it is very stark when you, you know, in the schedule, Flair had a hard schedule as NWA champion. Yet, there were certain beats that Hornbaker was able to hone in on and certain feuds that even 20, 30 years later, you remember as being important. Whereas even when Flair was a part of evolution and being a part of a major faction, that era didn't have the feel of the importance that Flair's other previous eras had. And that really comes through in the book. Notably, while summing up Flair's claims of how many women he's been with while on the road, oftentimes while he had a wife at home, or his noted attraction to spirits, Hornbaker simply wrote that Flair, quote, partook in the pleasures of being on the road, unquote. That's a very generous summation of Flair's sundry issues throughout his career, and I think, you know, quite frankly, that's one of the more offensive lines in the book to write off Flair's, um, you know, the things that he has done and, and the things that the problems that he has faced and encountered in his career outside of the ring to phrase it that way. Um, gosh, I mean, that is, I think that's the prime example of what this book is and what this book isn't. And, and that's, that's a, that's a great quote that kind of sums up the book. Um, the book ends right where you'd expect with Flair's final for real match, teaming with Andrade El Idolo against Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal. 
I expect it's a little more behind the scenes on this match, given its gravity, but it's almost mentioned in passing as Hornbaker wraps things up. That was one of the strange things is, um, you know, for, and maybe it doesn't fit in with the, you know, the idea here is that Flair has a certain legacy. He was a champion. Let's remember the great feuds that he had while he was on top. Let's remember how important and how memorable his run on top was. And, you know, his last match does not fit in with that, but given the finality of it, I thought that Hornbaker would have spent a little more time going into the match and, you know, certainly was not Flair's finest moment, but at 72, 73 years old, whatever it was, I don't think anybody expected it to be. Um, but I, I was surprised, given that it was the last match, that there wasn't more given to it. There is a real interesting story out there that balances Flair, arguably the greatest wrestler of all time, and certainly one of the most influential, with the very real and serious problems that Flair had to encounter um, in his personal life. This is not that story. The Hornbaker vowed to write this without bias or favoritism. He comes across as a huge fan of Flair, which has its benefits and drawbacks. Any unabashed fan of Flair's who's willing to overlook all his baggage will enjoy this tome. If you like Flair but want acknowledgement of the ugly side of his life and career, you'll likely end up disappointed. The Last Real World Champion, The Legacy of Nature Boy Ric Flair, is written by Tim Hornbaker, published by ECW Press, available wherever books are sold. You know, I'm a huge fan of Flair, the in-ring performer. Um... I remember when that WWE DVD came out and I was in uh, college or grad school and man, we watched every match in that. And I just watching him against Ricky Steamboat against Terry Funk, watching the promos, watching him against Dusty Rhodes was awesome. It was an era that I did not live through as a fan. And to be able to relive that through these DVDs and through uh, everything made me appreciate Ric Flair, the in-ring performer, even more than I already did. All that being said, I just... I, even as big a fan as I am of Flair, it's it's hard for me to appreciate this book as, as well-researched as it is and well-written as it is, just because I know that there are issues that I think should have been confronted in this book that weren't and were were mentioned but sort of written off and you know again maybe that wasn't the intent of Hornmaker maybe you know he he wrote this book with a certain intent in mind to present Ric Flair and, and his legacy uh, in the ring um so I don't know it, it, it's it's hard it, this is uh this is one of my tougher reviews for sure um, in this uh, in this column. So uh, that's the book. Uh, hope to have some more books coming my way that I'm able to review here in my column and on uh, Greg Parks Out Loud. So thank you for joining me. Uh, find me on social media at Greg M. Parks. 
take a look at uh, and a listen to Wrestling Night in America on PWTorchDailyCast.com. Just uh, did the Elimination Chamber post show with Brandon LeClaire on Saturday morning. So that was very different uh, in all the years I've been doing Wrestling Night in America. I had never gone on the air at uh, 8.30 a.m. Eastern time before. So that was fun getting to hear from uh, callers about the chamber and emailers about the chamber was fun so hope you'll check that out and we'll be doing it again with aew revolution coming up this sunday night so uh, again thank you for taking the time to read to listen until next time this has been greg parks out loud <laughs>